Hello, and welcome to the Can Chasers podcast, The Breaking Zone. Uh, unfortunately, Alex and May couldn't be here today. They are vacationing in Mexico, so we should all really feel bad for them right now as it's about to snow outside. Um, our guest today, I'm extremely excited, is Greg Tata. He is a, an industrial designer. He works with Aprilia. He's worked with Kawasaki. He develops motorcycles. He worked for Polaris. Um, super stoked about this. But before we get into that, um, I wanted to bring up a couple things. Um, if you want to ride with me, you want coaching from me, um, Apex Track Days. You can sign up for any Apex Track Day. I'm there. I'm the lead control rider, rider coach. You'll get to hang out with me. You get a track day. Um, go to apextrackdays.com to find the complete schedule. Uh, do it. But more exciting than that is we've paired up with the uh, Alex and I have teamed up with the Utah Sport Bike Association, and we are going to be teaching their advanced rider training program this year. And uh, it's basically it's a Yamaha Champion School approved curriculum, and so it's kind of like a champ school light. Um, go to utahsba.com/schools. utahsba.com/schools. Um, we have a school on June 4th and on August 5th. It's very reasonably priced. And again, you get to hang out with uh, me and Alex. Uh, and lastly, I don't want to forget, um, sign up to our Discord server. We have links to our Discord server. Um, if you go to our Instagram, go to our bio, go to any description of any video on YouTube, uh, come hang out with us on Discord. Uh, it's great conversation. We talk about motorcycle stuff all the time. It's great fun. So without further ado, let's get into... Uh, to talking with an industrial designer about how motorcycles uh, are made to look the way they look. Alex and May can't join today. They're apparently on vacation in uh, Mexico, so good for them. Good for them, yeah. Alex just bought an RSV4, so like all of us now are like on a brilliant. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> That's great. So tell Alex thank you for us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and May kind of kicked it off because she bought that um, that RS660. And I, I honestly, I wasn't really paying that much attention to it because I thought, you know. And then she got it, and she got the, the bright orange or the bright yellow one. And I was like, this thing is really cool. How come I haven't been paying attention to this thing? And then I rode it, and I was like, this is way better than it should be for what it costs. Like, this is a, what a humdinger of a motorcycle that thing is. So... May is really who we have to blame for all of us ending up on Aprilia's. I think a lot of people get scared off by the Italian brand, and um, I understand it, you know, especially given the history of it. But you know, all these new Italian bikes, you know, they're all pretty, pretty reliable nowadays. I think. Yeah, I don't think it's anything like what it was, um, like even fifteen, twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they've definitely made a push to make it like an everyday bike for sure. Yeah. Well, and yeah, it's really interesting to me too how Ducati, you know, and Aprilia have a very different approach to kind of the manufacturing and the production and everything like that. And you end up, even though you have kind of two Italian passion brands, they're quite different in character. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Like, I feel like Aprilia is so, you know, it's like they're they're really focused on handling, right? So it's like, Handling and then, um, I mean, I would say this for both of them, but I mean, that engine character was was like a really big thing, like especially going to the V4 really early for Apulia was a really, really big deal for them. And I think, um, you know, they just really focus on having uh, excellent handling, you know? And I hope that everybody who rides it will really appreciate it because of the time and work that goes into it. You know, that's that's really sort of the focus of that brand. 
the the front end feel on that RSV4 is got to be the best front end of any motorcycle I've ever ridden. You know, when I was coming from the 848, which was notoriously bad, it didn't have enough trail. The offset on the triple clamps was way off. So okay. change the triple clamps and, and it was better. But then to go from that to the Aprilia, you're like, oh, what was I missing? Why did I spend so much time like fighting with that? that lack of trail <laughs> and then you get to the Aprilia and you're like just breaking so deep and so hard into corners and that front is just so planted. It's a really wonderful characteristic for a motorcycle that makes over 200 horsepower. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to have that level of confidence, right? That's that's something that they work really, really hard to instill in the bikes. So I'm, I'm glad that you noticed. That's fantastic. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I noticed it on that 660 because, you know, like I built up the little 390 for my wife, the little KTM. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then to hop on that 660, I'm like, this thing is better. Like why, I should have just bought her one of these oh. for a track bike, you know? Yeah. But anyway, we're getting a little off topic. We're just like gushing on how much I really like the motorcycle. Um, how, how did you get into this? Because you, you know, this is something that I was extremely interested in high school and, to, and into college. Um, how did you get into it? How did you get through the process and, and end up working, getting kind of like what I would consider the dream job? Um, well, I mean, I guess that would have to kind of go back. Like, you know, I, I went to Olympus High in, um, in Holiday, Utah, right? Like just born and raised in Utah. And uh, I had this really great um, art teacher there and she made sure to get these college brochures like every year. And um, I only took art for like one year. Like my parents are very traditional Asian. You know, it's like they, when I told them that I wanted to be a designer, they told me that's a great way to become homeless. And, uh, you know, they were not thrilled with this idea, but I, you know, I took one one class and that's where I um, I met uh, Mrs. McConkie over at Olympus High. And I also met um, one of my best friends, Dave Osler. And um, it's just like the support that I got there really sort of helped me to decide to, to kind of do this in a, it's kind of a circuitous route, uh, route that I took. And uh, to be honest, when I first graduated from high school, uh, I went to the University of Utah and I studied computer science. So I think I was just really trying to be that, um, you know, I was just trying to sort of keep the folks happy and it's like, you know, they wanted a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And so I decided to go the engineer route. Um, I started working for a couple of video game companies and uh, I, you know, it's like, it just wasn't me. You know, it's like, I really wanted to make it happen and I still have an interest in it, but I just, I remember this one time I um, I was working for this robotics company and uh, it was actually my my dad's friend's company. And I, I after about three months, I, I went home and I told my dad, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't. Um, I, you know, I played at uh, Art Center back in like maybe 2001, 2002, got accepted. And then that was kind of, that was it. You know, it's like, then my path was sort of set. Um, but I will say most of these design schools that teach transportation design, like, you know, these schools really sort of teach uh, like automotive design. And so even in school, like even after I got into this college that I really wanted to go to, I really had to fight to get, uh, to have the opportunity to, to design bikes because a lot of times the teachers would just flat out tell me, it's like, you can't do a bike in my class because we don't really know like how to help you. Like we can't critique your work. Like we can't really give you like great, um, uh, 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 suggestions. And so it was really sort of, um, you know, I, I was really lucky in college that uh, I had a roommate there, uh, Curtis Karuth, 
And, um, you know, he's worked all over as well, but we were both like totally motorcycle nuts. And we both had decided early on that we really wanted to study motorcycle design. So um, we were really kind of fortunate to find each other and to be roommates because, you know, we could do homework together and we just kind of nerd out, nerd out about bikes every day. But it was really sort of, um, yeah, I was just so lucky to find Curtis, you know. And uh, after that, I graduated. Um, you know, it's like I was looking for a job for a little while. And, uh, you know, my, my third stroke of luck is that I, I found a mentor in uh, Kohei Iguchi. He was uh, he used to be a teacher at Art Center, um, and he was a designer for Honda for a long time. But he helped me get my first job over at uh, Suzuki. And uh, I was their first, I think I was their only American designer for a while. And I was working out of Orange County. Um, you know, sadly that studio is not around anymore, but I was there for five years and that's really sort of what, um, helped me get my foot in the, the door. And then after that, it's a lot easier. Like once you're, once you're in, it's, it's a lot easier, but getting in, I, I think that's, you know, that's how it is for a lot of, uh, uh, industries, but that's kind of how it started really. Well, and, and you've worked on a lot of really interesting motorcycles, you know, and, and, and part of why I was really excited to talk to you about this is because we as the consumer don't see or even hear about what you do. And yet it's such a, a big part of what we love about motorcycles, the aesthetic look at them. You know, like a new motorcycle comes out and you're like, oh, well, you know, the piston goes three millimeters further and, you know, the bore changed by this and the rate changed by whatever degree. And, you know, we dropped this much weight. But unless it's Ducati and we're talking about like a few of like those famous designers at Ducati, we never hear or see or even get a glimpse into what it takes or what considerations are made into what the thing looks like. And for so many of us, you know, we have like the poster on the wall and like what it looks like is a huge part of the decision-making process as to what bike we want. I just love the look of that one, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, you know, I think especially nowadays, like, I'd say the last 10 years, it's gotten a little bit more complicated because we're always kind of looking at like changing the process. So I think in the earlier days, it was a little bit easier. You get out like markers, chalk, pencils, and you would just do like all these cool sketches and stuff, right? And they had like a lot of flash and stuff, but then you would take that and you would start working on a clay model, right? And the clay model process, that's still really a large part of what we do. Uh, some companies have actually eliminated it. Like, actually, they're pretty, like, you know, I never touch clay. But when I was at Kawasaki, like, you know, I was shaving the clay, like, you know, for, uh, if you look at the current Ninja 650, like, I did a lot of the clay work myself um, on that bike. And um, it's interesting because, like, every studio is so different. Like, you know, I wish that there was, like, an easy way to describe, like, what all the different studios do. But, like, I've noticed, you know, working with the Japanese companies, working with an American company, now working with an Italian company, every single company has a totally different process. And it's crazy that they're still able to sort of bring that all together into this working two-wheel, you know, very complicated, sophisticated uh, machine. But, you know, generally speaking, it starts out with um, talking to product planning. And those guys have a tough job because, you know, they're looking at um, a really, really, you know, it's a global market. I, I, I think actually, that's one thing that I want the your your viewers to kind of understand is that like, you know, when we're designing bikes, you know, even though I'm I'm an American, you know, it's like we really have to look at this global market because 
if you look at the number of units sold in the U.S., it's dwarfed by some of these other um, by these other markets. So, you know, we kind of go back and forth with product planning, and we talk about you know it's like what do we think is going to really sell in in these markets and stuff. We'll decide which markets that we want to go to. Then we start with um, you know sketch phase. That could be um, yeah, Kawasaki. Like they just had they would just assign one designer to it, and you know whatever they produce is what they produce. Other companies like Polaris and, um, you know, sometimes with Piaggio, they'll do this too. They'll do a sketch competition where several designers sort of put up like their best ideas and then they whittle it down to the, you know, uh, maybe like the strongest two or three. And then they, they, they um, you know, sometimes they'll do like a focus group or internally they'll decide which one they think is the strongest and then they move forward. But then they'll take that into the 3D phase. And that could be either digital or it could be analog with clay. Um, and it, it just really depends on, on the company, right? Um, but I think in the past as well, like the, the designers, like that separation between doing the 2D, the sketches, and the 3D, was a, it was a little bit more, um, they're a little bit more separate. But I think nowadays we're, we're sort of responsible for a lot more of our own 3D work, which is both clay and digital, right? So... The number of things that the designers have to do nowadays is actually like increased quite a bit. We just have like, um, you know, different, more, more tasks that we have to do at a higher level, you know? And um, with the EV thing coming on, all the different regulations that are, you know, coming into play like globally, you know, that also sort of throw things up in the air just a little bit because the way that we designed for that is going to be a little bit different than how we designed for, you know, a gas bike. So that's, that's kind of how it is, but like right now we're kind of in this this crazy time, but it's really exciting, right? Because we have all these new opportunities to design for bikes that um, that we haven't really thought about before. Like, how do you design a bike that doesn't have like an exhaust, right? Like, because that's usually like actually a pretty major styling point for a lot of these bikes. So it's a really interesting time, but um, our process has been changing quite a bit um, lately, especially like also adding things like VR. We are adding like VR to the process and stuff. So, I mean, adding it's, it's already been in the mix for a while, but, um, not all the studios use it as heavily as others. So do you favor or see an advantage to like the old school analog clay model? Cause those are like the photos you see it and always so compelling to me to see like what it looks like in this kind of orange clay versus are there advantages to doing it digital? Is that just like a faster process or do you? miss things in the digital thing that you can only see when it's something you can actually touch and feel yeah that's a good question because it's um you know both both of them have cons and pros and cons um when we look at the clay you have that immediate feedback right um you can sit on a clay model and you can kind of check the ergos like automatically right it's so fast to be able to go through actually check what the ergonomic you know you could do your ergo check so easily like especially like how your legs fit around a tank right and that's something that's really hard to replicate when we're doing it in VR because in VR, you know, we like just the controllers, we can feel like what's happening there, but like, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to sort of mimic that in VR. So the, um, with clay, I think it's just sort of like being able to touch the surface, seeing it with your own two eyes and seeing how much crown a surface has, like how much it sort of bubbles out if it's too flat, you know, sometimes it looks almost concave and we can see those things immediately when we're doing it in clay, but with uh you know clay's expensive it requires a lot of space and um it requires a really high degree of skill so a lot of times the designers kind of hack something in 
and then we'll have professional clay maulers come in and clean up our our chicken scratch and um with vr you know the the thing is like space cost um time you know it's like it's you you gain that back so what we'll often what we'll do is that we'll make something in um we'll make something virtually and then we'll actually just mill it out and then we could do their you know our our um ergo checks on their milled out piece right so it does sort of increase that speed but i do kind of find like with clay you're going to get just a little higher bit of refinement of those services so there's yeah there's pluses and minuses i i've done both i like both you know but probably moving forward like it's you're just going to start seeing vr and and this digital taking more and more of that you know if you have this much time in the past you'd have this much for clay and i think it's just it's getting more and more compressed to the point where some you know some studios just don't even use clay at all so that brings up a question that alex actually had which i think is was really good and uh I'm a huge MotoGP fan. Um, I love, you know, Aprilia is finally seeing some great success. But in the design aspect of it, especially talking about the shape of the tank, for us as riders, the shape of the tank is huge. You know, especially when you're getting into the more performance aspect of it, how I move on the bike, how I'm able to hook my outside leg into the tank. Um, How much input or how much information do you guys bring in from, you know, like Maverick and, you know, for the design, based on what they're doing on the track, how much of that makes it into some of the designs that you guys are working on? That's tough, just because, like, you know, those guys are like a moving R&D studio, you know, because um, the thing about MotoGP is that, you know, some weekends they'll they'll go towards something, and then the next weekend they'll, they'll be like, well, for this track, that's not what we want at all. So it kind of, you know, it, it's sort of a moving target, and so it's it's hard to to really use like some of their feedback, like in the production stuff. And then so much of what they're doing is, you know, the focus is a little bit different, even when we compare it to like RSV4, right? So um, like the gas capacity, you know, the fuel capacity that they need, you know, if it's a short track, maybe they don't use like the full capacity of it. But then if we have, you know, if our, if our fuel range is only like, you know, 90 miles or something, like I remember like the old BTR 1000s, yeah, I had one of those. Yeah, I thought that was a great bike, but like people always complained about the range. They just said, "Man, this thing great," but I have to fill it up like you know at every corner, and um, you know we just kind of have to balance between that you know the race heritage, but then also the practicality of it. Because even if it's a a bike that's really meant to live on the track, you're still going to get a ton of guys who just you know use it for commuting and stuff. So it's always about finding that balance. Um, but then. We'll look at other things like, you know, especially with aerodynamics, you know, if you look at uh, what Aprilia's been doing, you know, with um, all the new bikes, you know, they all have like the winglets and stuff like the the Tuenos that I worked on, we had like the internal uh, winglets, right? So we just wanted to make it so it's a little bit less um, out there. We wanted to leave that more for the RSV4, but we still wanted to have that downforce and that sort of look to it and stuff, you know? So that was definitely uh, inspired by the MotoGP bikes. You know, and so we are seeing like some of that stuff come in. The tank is the hardest part though, just because like, you know, the frame is so much of the the cut of that tank and is also like tied to the shape of the frame. And like if we're doing like a, a frame that doesn't really change from generation to generation and stuff, we're we're kind of tied to 
you know, some of the, the old tank shape and stuff, you know, but, um, you know, with the new ones, we did try to make the tanks a little bit lower and stuff so that you get like an easier tuck. And, um, we are definitely, um, even though the, the race team is a, you know, separate from what we do, um, you know, Miguel Galuzzi that, you know, I'm sure you've heard of, you know, famous for design monster and stuff. Um, you know, he's the design director and he's, he's always been sort of really, he's always had an eye towards the racing side, right? So he talks to those guys quite a bit and we, we do try to get as much of that into it that we, that we can, but at the same time, trying to keep it a production bike that's still like livable, you know what I mean? So it's sort of that balance between, you know, the race DNA, but then keeping it like a livable day-to-day bike as well. It's kind of, I was working with a racer once he was, I was getting some coaching from him and he's like, show me, show me how you sit on the bike. And I get on the bike and I do this and he goes, oh, you need to have your guy make your tank a little bit lower and a little bit longer. So you can get in like, oh, thanks. I'll just have my guy make me a new tank. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because you look at the MotoGP bikes and the tanks are relatively square, you <laughs> know, they kind of come back and drop off. And, you know, as a street rider, that could be kind of miserable. <laughs> to have that little point yeah you know like jabbing you right in the middle of the abdomen yeah right yeah yeah so it's i don't know it's um when we have gone like really race bred yeah like we kind of come back with like some complaints and stuff like that or like i think the other thing is that the race bikes are so customized for these shorter guys who are just you know like um you know, if we, I don't know, I'm, I'm not that tall. I'm like 5'10", but I mean, compared to like maybe Maverick or something, or like, you know, you look at a Danny Pedrosa, I look like a giant next to that guy, you right. know? I'm 5'7". I'm a normal size, so I yeah, love yeah, yeah. all these like little, <laughs> I think they're great. <laughs> and then, you know, you were talking about the aerodynamics too. I actually started on a process where we actually um, um, scanned some of your wings, uh-huh. and we were going to run them through some... Um, SolidWorks and see what's actually happening because we don't ever get that information here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, like, how much does that come into play? What is the actual effectiveness of some of these wings, and how do you work that into a design that's you know you don't have like these little carbon fiber blades that are going to cut into you know what I mean? There's I see a lot of problems that wings could pose from a design functionality reliability or uh, breakability standpoint. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a huge issue. Um, that was a, it's, it's a tricky one because I think, you know, it's honestly like, you know, the winglets, you know, I think most people know this, that like, you know, they're, they're not really effective until you reach a certain speed, you know, that speed is usually pretty high. Um, so really it's kind of more for like the, the track day enthusiasts and stuff is they're the ones who are actually going to see the actual, you know, benefits of it. Um, you know, on, on some bikes that I've worked on, they do the winglets where, um, they actually use it. Uh, they want that MotoGP look, but maybe they use it for a slightly different uh, purpose. Like maybe it actually deflects wind away from the rider, right? Oh, really? So it might wow. actually still create like some um, downforce and stuff. Like um, if you look at the current Ninja 650, you know, that's the bike that I worked on when I was at Kawasaki. And uh, if you look at it, they actually have some pass-through holes. And uh, I actually took that from uh, MotoGP Influence uh, when I was over there. And really what it was is just just to sort of deflect the air out, right? So you have the rider and you want to sort of have that little bubble that they're, you know, that they're that they're in. And it's just trying to reduce the wind blast that the rider has to face because it's, you know, I mean, I, I put MotoGP influence into that bike, but it's a, you know, this is 650, that's a commuter bike, 
you know, so you're the the aim is a little bit different for that one, right? It's it's more about comfort, right? But you still want like a style that, um, you know, it's like w one thing that I always uh, one thing that I always say in the studio is that like, yeah, uh, you know, I think motorcycle riders, the the motorcycle kind of becomes like their avatar, right? And it's like it's something that is like highly personal to them, and you know, really like a big thing is this: they just don't want their friends to to laugh or like make fun of their bike and stuff. So like whether it's a commuter bike or whatever kind of bike you have, you just kind of want it to look good, you know? So it could be like, it takes that MotoGP styling that's, you know, in vogue right now. You know, it's like even for, you know, uh, you know, a great commuter bike, like a Ninja 650, you still want to put that stuff in because that's what those customers really demand. You know, so my yeah. nephew, uh -huh. all he wanted was a Ninja 650, you know, and he, like it's his first motorcycle and he came to me and he's like, Do you, is, a, is a Ninja 650 a good bike? And I'm like, yes. And he loved that it looked as far as he could tell as like a new rider to him. It looked just like a ZX6R, yeah. right? It was yeah. every bit as cool. But, you know, even as far as growing the sport, making that more new rider, that commuter bike, that kinder, gentler motorcycle look every bit as badass as their their MotoGP superstar is riding, there's a, a, a incredible amount of value in that, I think. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Like, I, I mean, you know, that's the thing that this industry needs more of is that, you know, we just need like more younger writers and stuff, you know, and just making sure that they have options that they, that they like, that they, that they actually want is super, super important. You know, um, you know, when I look at this market, like so much of the, the market is sort of top heavy right now, you know? And it's just one of those things like, uh, you know, a lot of times in my competition boards, I put things like iPhone and, you know, Steam Deck and like, you know, PlayStation as competitors to our bikes. Like I don't necessarily look at other brands as competitors, but a lot of times I'll actually put things like, you know, those are the things that are actually competing for their time, you know? <laughs> and so it's like the brand of it is like less important, right? I'm just looking at what what is competing for time with, uh, you know, for these young people, what's actually getting like their dollars and stuff, you know? So I, it's just, it's crazy to me that we have to work so hard to, to make it compelling to them because once they write it, you know, it's like most people are hooked right away, you know? And it's crazy that like, we have to work so hard to sell this thing, you know, because it's such an incredible sport. It's so much fun to do, you know, but yeah, like until people, I think that's the thing until you get their butts in the saddle, they're not convinced. You well, know? and this is something I really think the 660 platform has done so exceedingly well. The RS 660, the Tuono 660, now the Touareg 660. <laughs> all three of these bikes are so, like, it's a shame we don't have a dealer here in Utah because you look at those things in the flash and they are stunning, right? And I'm really excited about the Touareg because that thing reminds me of the old Honda Transalps from back in the 80s that we all were like, I would kill for that thing. And it took Aprilia to kind of make it and make it accessible, right? And it's yeah. the 660 motor is a gem. It's easy to ride. And then you make it look so cool. <laughs> you know, like it's the first bike I recommend to anybody. Oh, you're looking for, go, go look at a 660, you know? Yeah. I think they're really, they're exciting, right? They're cool. They're exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate hearing that because I, I know that the team works so hard on those bikes. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's the thing is that like um, bringing some of that, you know, people want that exotic Italian 
you know, DNA in their bikes and stuff, even from, you know, first bike and stuff. And just bring that down to a level that they can actually, you know, afford and stuff, you know, I think is super, super important because I think lately, like you're seeing so many bikes that are 25,000 plus, you know, especially from the Italians, right? And then there's kind of like this little dead zone, you know, until like under $10,000 and stuff. And just kind of bring something where it's like, you know, that, that sort of mystique at a price point that people can bear, you know, was really, oh, really yeah. important. Like, that's a lot of motorcycle for 10 grand. It, I really do think you get the good suspension, you get the good dash, you get the technology package, okay. right? Like you kind of get, it, it's really, not to just a gush on affiliate, I think I, I would recommend it or commend any company that does this, that makes, you know, has all the cool stuff and it looks cool in a, in a, at a price point that, especially kids today, they're dealing with a bigger challenge than than you and I probably did. Housing's more expensive, you know, like the job market's harder. It's it's you know, like using the PlayStation and the iPhone is kind of like the competitor is is probably a good approach, right? Because the amount of discretionary income at their disposal is less than you and I probably had. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely harder for them, and and uh, you know, it's like I I we see it like every day, like when we're doing our our customer research and stuff, you know. So just trying to to bring stuff down to you know a level that people can live with, you know, I think is super super important because we want to keep this this sport healthy. And and you know, even though I work with Aprilia, you know, it's like I don't, you know, it's like I don't look down on any brands or anything. Like I like when I'm writing, I whiff to everybody. Like I don't care if they're on a scooter, on an electric you know, a Harley or a metric, I don't care. You know, it's like I, I wave to everybody because, um, you know, the health of the sport is really, really important because, you know, the more people are out there riding, the more awareness um, car drivers have. And, um, you know, when we think about things like uh, like lane splitting and lane filtering and stuff, you know, the only way that we can really kind of push some of that legislation is like, you know, we need to have like enough people, you know, who are interested in it that, that the lawmakers actually push for those things. So it's, you know, I'm all about just getting more writers out there because it's so important, you know, for all of us, you know, so yeah, I respect to everybody on two wheels. Yeah. I'm with you. I love yeah. all motorcycles, right? I yeah. don't, you know, like I know like a lot of the cruisers get a lot of hate. You came, you worked at Pol Polaris. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have any hate, man. Like as someone once said to me, and I quote him all the time, is I've never met a motorcycle I didn't want to ride. I've met plenty I didn't want to own, but I've never met a motorcycle I didn't want to ride. That's a great you one. Know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I totally like, feel they're that. They're all cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I think, you know, when I was in school, someone noticed that, um, you know, we, we'd be sitting out, you know, somewhere for lunch or something and... All of my classmates, you know, they would check out every car that'd come by, and I, I never looked up, you know? It's just, I never even noticed, like, when the cars were going by, but, like, even I've heard, like, some clapped out, like, you know, old bike and stuff, I'd always check it out. I was like, oh, what's, what is this guy? <laughs> you know? Oh, it's, it's a like, Maxim. Oh, it's a Maxim. Yeah, yeah exactly. That was one of the first bikes with the dual overhead cams. Yeah. That was a big <laughs> I was like, I remember this one time, like, a, a Magna went by, I'm like, Bro, you know what that thing is, man? It's like, you know, it's like that engine's a V4. I did so many. <laughs> when I was in the army, one of the drill sergeants had a Magna with the V4, right? Yeah. And every time he would ride by, I would look, and they're like, what are you looking at? You go do some push-ups. You you're you supposed to be looking at motorcycles. I'm like, like, the V4. Like, the V4 is honestly my personal favorite engine configuration. Same. I just Same. Oh, I yeah. love the V4. And I love seeing them coming back, right? We Like, you, you guys, you know, Aprilia kind of kicked it off by making them you know, like back in the day, 
like the VFR, like I had a VFR poster on my wall as a kid. And then there was the VFR 400. Do you remember those? Yes, I do. Oh my gosh. They were so amazing. Like I still want one. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, me too. Absolutely. Yeah, if one came up, I would totally pick up a VFR 400. They are. Yeah. Oh, and you feel like a superhero. Like they spin up to like 18,000 RPM and they just, they sound so cool. Anyway. It's just like, even if you're just putting around and stuff, I'm just sitting there. It's like, man, that thing sounds like a MotoGP bike, you know, and it's just like that, that sound. I just cannot, you know, I mean, I, I will say like, I appreciate like, you know, all the, the engines, like, um, it's just kind of a funny story. Like I remember when I was working at Polaris, I decided to, um, um, you know, I was talking Kawasaki and those guys, you know, gave me an offer and stuff. And someone was to say, it's like, ah, oh, Kawasaki, like, why are you going over there? And I just remember, you know, telling a friend of mine, it's like, bro, like these guys made a supercharged inline four that makes like, you know, the track one makes like 300 horsepower. I mean, that got like my respect, like right away. I'm just like, I don't think anyone else will do that. Like the only company that's crazy enough to do that is Kawasaki. And it's like, I hope people will just realize like how hard it is to do something like that at a Japanese company. And like, I will always have respect for Kelly for doing the H2R. Like that thing will just always have a place in my heart, man. You know, so because well, and I'm stoked they brought the the four cylinder 400 over to America. Yeah, I'm really excited about that too. Because yeah, you know, yeah. So I mean, they're I don't know these companies that are just pushing and stuff. I just have like a ton of respect and a, just a lot of admiration for these companies that are just you know sticking you know just putting it out there and stuff. You know, and 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 they're giving us. I feel like there was a time where it's like we didn't really have like poster material, right? You were talking about how you had like a poster of like a BFR like in your room and stuff. And it's like, I feel like, you know, the industry is really trying to sort of give like young people that, you know, they're giving that to me. It's like, I want to put a poster of it, like, you know, in my room and stuff, you know? So it's, um, it's an exciting time, you know, on motorcycles. It really, really is because of the, like, you know, for a while, everyone was just going inline four or like a single or, uh, you know, it's like an inline twin or something. But now it's like just, you know, you see all these triples, you see like cross-plane Craig and like there's just so much variety when it comes to that stuff. So it's it's a really exciting time. It really is. So you were mentioning that, you know, you do a lot of market research and a lot of motorcycles are not necessarily designed for America. So mm-hmm. what what does that necessarily mean? What did different demographics want out of a motorcycle that, that Americans don't buy or don't want? Like I'm really curious how that plays out. Um. That's a trick. Yeah, it's like some of it's price point, right? Like, um, you know, I think one thing that I want people to sort of understand about like just the global market is like just how big it is. And like, um, you know, it's like the things that are really popular, like in your city or your state, isn't necessarily something that's going to like, you know, if we just do these things, it's not going to turn the, the company around, you know? Um, like when we look at like the US, um, I think last year they sold like around 550,000 units in the U.S., right? And it seems like a really big number. But then when you think about um, Vietnam, they sold 3 million units. Indonesia, they sold 5.4 mil, uh, million units. And then uh, China sold, uh, I think, over 16 million. And uh, in 2019, India, those guys sold like, I think, over 21 million units in 2019. I mean... 21 million units versus 550,000 in the U.S., you know, even if they're not making this much margin and stuff, that's that's a big number, right? So, like, um, you know, of course, with India, like, they're just not, 
in the same place that we are. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're shooting at a, at a, you know, smaller displacement, smaller, you know, it's like costs and stuff. Um, but you know, kids around the world, they all have the internet, right? doesn't matter like where you live and they all see MotoGP and World Superbike and that's, that's really what they want, you know? So the, the, I think it's a lot like the RS660 for like the US European market. You know, how do we bring some of that excitement to, you know, how do we deliver that to a price that they can live with, you know? So that's kind of like the, the, one of the bigger differences, but, you know, you look at, um, the, the different writing conditions, like, you know, um, Southeast Asia, they're going to get a lot more rain than, than most of the U S does. Right. So the way that they sort of ride their bikes and stuff is going to be a little bit different. Um, you know, for a long time in the U S like they really like, like fat tires on cruisers and stuff like that, you know, thankfully kind of went away and stuff, but I mean, do you know what I mean? Like that was sort of like a U.S. only, like very, very specific to that market. And it really wasn't like big anywhere else, you know? So I think it's just sort of, um, it's sort of surprising how many similarities there are between the different markets, especially with young people. Like I think the older generations, there's a lot more differences in their, those markets between different countries. But then when we look at the young people, the younger markets, you know, um, Gen Z and stuff, like they you know, they don't know what life is without the internet, right? So it's like, they're looking at Instagram and stuff and they're looking at TikTok and they're looking at, you know, they're all seeing the same stuff, right? So they tend to have a little bit more similar tastes no matter what country you go to, you know? So that's been sort of like an interesting trend, right? But then like the older you go, it, it seems like, you know, a lot of times like their tastes are a little bit more set, you know? So even if they see a lot of things on the internet and stuff, it doesn't really seem to sway them as much. You know, so yeah, it's, I would say like, there's things like that, but then also like, um, you know, the U S like scooters, they just don't sell, man. They just don't. I mean, there might be pockets of it, but scooters are just not a U.S. thing, you know? And I get it. I mean, it might change something in the future. We, you know, we're always looking for that, but you look at Europe and like the rest of the world, like, you know, Asia, especially, you know, it's like. Um, how do we give that DNA, you know, the MotoGP, the racing DNA to like a scooter and stuff? How do we make it exciting? You know, and you see these things that sort of pop out, you know, you know, that come out of it. Like Honda came out with like an adventure scooter and, uh, the, the name of it's kind of escaping me and stuff, but I mean, it's a really tough looking, you know, little scooter that's selling really, really well. You know, they took these two things in Europe, you know, scooters and adventure bikes, and they were able to successfully meld the two like together into like this really successful, um, motorcycle over there. So, you know, you kind of look for those types of opportunities, like, you know, what, what's in the zeitgeist for these young people, what's in the zeitgeist for the older customers, like, you know, how do we bring something fresh and new to those guys? So we're just, we're always looking at these markets and seeing like what's, what's, um, popping for those guys. So what has been some of your design inspiration? Like, like who did you take inspiration from is like, like that's the aesthetic that I am really drawn to or really standout designs that you just think are really great? Um, it really depends on the market. Like, um, I'll, I'll give you one example. So I, I worked on an uh, early iteration of the, uh, the Indian challenger when I was over at Polaris. So, um, you know, I worked on an early iteration and then they canceled that project and then it came back to life. Uh, a good friend of mine, Ian Dunn, super talented guy, but he took it and, and brought it to, to life. He's the one who took, like, you know, those bits and pieces and, and really sort of made this cohesive design um, that, that you see on the road today. But, um, 
you know, when I started on that project, uh, I looked at the customer and what I really drew inspiration from is that, you know, it's a very American market. Um, you know, you look at the, the difference between an American performance machine versus like a European uh, or Asian performance machine. You know, I looked at like 60s uh, muscle cars, 70s muscle cars, a lot of Mopar stuff. And, um, you know, for Challenger, I drew a lot on like just old, like, you know, Dodge power, you know, it's like that, that sort of like, you know, instead of a, an arrow going through the air, I want it to be more like a blunt thing, like more like a fist going through the air, you know? And so, um, it really sort of depends on the market, but for, you know, that market, I thought that was actually the right inspiration for that market, you know? Um, when I worked on the Ninja 650, uh, you know, I think these writers are really aspirational. And so, you know, they don't, I think they're smart enough not to buy like an H2 as their first bike, right? They're smart enough not to buy ZX-10R as their first bike, but that's where they want to get to, right? And they don't want to sacrifice like the style of it, you know, just because they're, they're into their first bike and stuff. So I took a lot of inspiration, you know, actually from MotoGP, you know, because that's, that's the feedback that I was getting is like, hey, can we make these things look like race bikes, right? So um, that's why I put like the aero features on it. Um, you know, it's like just kind of giving it a little bit more presence. Like the, the feedback that we got with the previous one is that it felt like a little bit small. It, the previous one felt smaller than the Ninja 400. So we just wanted to make sure that this one looks like a logical step up, you know, from the 400 to the 650 and stuff. So, you know, we're going to do things like that. Um, you know, with, with the Aprilia stuff, you know, it's like, I, sometimes I would look at something a little bit more abstract, you know, because like, it's more of an exotic bike, you know, but I mean, with these, uh, you know, with the new arrow, it kind of gives you this opportunity to do something different. And so what I was looking at is like, you know, what else kind of has like this sort of pass through function. And I, I, it sounds kind of strange, but I looked a lot at the aquarium and I looked at how gills worked and stuff. And so, you know, uh, the early, you know, 200s and stuff, they had like, you know, a dirt, like a black or gray, like on the outside, but then the inside was sort of red, you know, it's almost like that you're kind of bringing that air in almost like, like gills and you're, you're pushing it out, out the, you know, out the back. But, um, little funny thing for me is that like, you know, my parents are Japanese, um, even though I grew up in Utah, I still am, you know, really proud of my heritage and stuff. And I, I always try to bring a little bit of that, like Japanese, like the artisan in. So I looked at Japanese lacquerware where they have like, you know, you'd have like a miso bowl that's black on the outside and they, they have this beautiful red lacquer on the inside. And a lot of the inspiration for how I treated like the, the aero features on the Tuano is that like, I looked at um, Japanese lacquerware, you know? So I kind of picked, you know, from different places to try to, you know, come up with something unique and something that's um, appealing and, and beautiful, you know, but it really just sort of depends on the customer, you know, and like what, what it is that I feel like from my research, like what they're aspiring for. Yeah. I love it, man. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Cause you can see those things on the Tuono, the little inside behind the winglet, the little on, which is always, I thought excellent little detail. I really like that. Appreciate it, man. Um, what are some of like the big challenges of trying to get like your vision through or like the different companies have a different approach? Like I would want to assume that Aprilia, because they are smaller, they can be a little bit more nimble. You might get a little bit more freedom where someone like Kawasaki, big giant Japanese corporation, is it harder? I don't, like, what What are the big um, barriers you have to get over? 
I think because of the cost of development, you know, it's like they reuse parts a lot more. This is across the board, you know? So, um, you know, if they're, if they ask you to use the same headlights across the board, because, um, as soon as they switch to led headlights, I don't know if people realize like how expensive it is to homologate, uh, 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 LED headlights is very, very expensive. And so that's just something that you're going to start seeing, like, you know, reused everywhere and stuff, because it's just, you know, the cost of it is so much higher than, um, the old cell, like incandescent lights. Um, so these, uh, LED lights, like, you know, one thing that's kind of hard is that you might have like a headlight that they're asking you to reuse and it, they, they might ask you to reuse a headlight that from a totally different type of bike for a totally different customer. And that makes it a little bit challenging, but also, um, exhaust regulations right now, um, because of the size of the, you know, the pipes and the chambers that we have to use, you know, all the sensors that are available, like, I mean, bikes today have more coverings and stuff than the old bikes because we're just trying to cover like excess wires and like all the ugly bits that you know that we're required to have when they leave the factory you know so that can be really really challenging is that like you know we just have like all these little warts that we're just trying to sort of like finesse you know so um it's a good thing right like we're making you know faster more powerful bikes than ever but um yeah, with with some of that, you're going to have like, you know, some of the, the pains of like, you know, how do we sort of, you know, how do we sort of like wrap this thing in something beautiful, you know, so that's kind of hard. But I would also say like, you know, depending on the company that you're working for, like you're saying like Capilla, they're, they are nimble, you know, um, their product plan is probably a little bit more flexible, whereas the Japanese, you know, they'll have like a hundred year plan and they don't expect to actually follow that hundred year plan, like, you know, a hundred years from now, because, you know, of course they don't know what it brings but i thought it was actually a really interesting um exercise because it really pushed him to think like what could we be doing in 50 years what could we be doing in 10 years and stuff and i think that it kind of made them look at like a bigger picture and stuff you know so i i wish that every company did that because i thought it was actually a really fun exercise like as a designer but um yeah it's like once it gets to like the next generation like they're they stick to that plan pretty hard you know like the budget's set like the vision is set like you know if you want to really move off that i think it's a lot harder you know when you're working with the japanese companies so well you know like kawasaki heavy industries they make like container ships yeah you know like like it's such a giant corporation it's so much more than the motorcycle that most of us are familiar with right yeah absolutely it's um yeah, it's like, I felt like the motorcycles were just like their marketing budget for like everything else because, you know, it kind of serves as a halo. Like, you know, it's this great like ambassador to the world. Like everybody knows Kawasaki, but usually for their motorcycles. With Kawasaki, one thing that I thought was interesting that they have that the other companies don't is that they have a lot of, um, they have a lot of aircraft know-how like in-house, right? And there are different departments, you know, they're different parts of the company. But when they were building that H2, right like the the turbine for the supercharger it was spinning so fast that i think it would like explode because it was going so fast so they actually had to get you know these guys from from their uh, aircraft division to help them engineer it and stuff you know but that's something that the other companies you know who where are they gonna go you know what i mean so i thought that was actually <laughs> super cool that um kawasaki was able to to draw from these different you know departments and stuff that's really really cool um so we're moving into the electric revolution, right? That's coming. You kind of touched on some of the challenges of 
an electric bike without an exhaust system. What are some of the other things that you see might be coming with electric motorcycle design? So this is something that I've just personally felt for a while. Um, I feel like electric motorcycles, the way that we are looking at them right now, I call it electric bike 1.0. Because really, you know, even if the even if it's like a ground up new design, basically it's a gas bike package with a without the gas without the gas engine, right? Like the frame is the same, the geometry is you know usually very very similar, and they're just putting an electric drivetrain in it. So I kind of call it 1.0, and I just wonder if there aren't. I just wonder if there aren't some things that we could take advantage of with this new EV um, drivetrain, right? Because, um, you know, I don't know those these frames these. The frames that we see right now, right, uh, the tubes kind of went up and around the gas engine because you can't go through it, right? And for that, like, it made sense to have a traditional fork in the front. And so it's like, I think it would be interesting to see Electric Bike 2.0 where we can kind of question, like, this package and say, hey, like, are there different ways that we could actually put this together that actually is more beneficial, right? It actually is advantageous to actually change it because... You know, you've got these batteries that, you know, they look really big and monolithic, but you look inside, they're all these like tiny little like D cell or C shell, like, you know, size batteries that are all like welded up together. I mean, if there's a way that you can split it up, right? So it's like, you actually do have some freedom with the packaging of it. And that's kind of what I would like to see for the future motorcycles. Like when I think about the bikes that really influenced me when I was a kid, like, you know, uh, I'm Japanese-American, so Akira was huge for me, huge. Um, but, you know, you look at, like, the old, like, elf bikes, right? I mean, they did some stuff that were so cool, like, you know, back in the day. And then um, uh, the, the, uh, the Kiwi from New Zealand. Um, oh, Britain. Britain, you know? Yeah. You just look at, like, you know, just some of the out-of-the-box, you know, thinking that that was, that was going on back then, like... I just feel like right now the electric companies kind of have their blinders on because they're seeing that this is what worked before and this is these are the components that we can buy from the suppliers. But eventually I'd like to see a little bit, um, I don't know, I'd just like to see a little bit more, you know, differentiation, like a little bit more experimentation because we have a drivetrain that finally lets us do that. And uh, we don't have to, you know, assume that everything is decided already, you know, so... That's kind of what I would like to see. Um, but I, I think, you know, before something like that can happen, we have like this divide right now where electric bikes are so expensive. So you have the boomers that have the money, but they don't really want EV motorcycles. And then you have, you know, it's like you'll have like the Gen Z kids that do want the EV bikes, but they don't have the scratch for it, right? And so you're trying to find a way like, you know, to bridge that that gap and stuff, you know? Can we bring electric motorcycles to a point that, you know, that the people who want it can afford it? Or can we make them exciting enough that the people who do have the money are interested, you know? So we're kind of in this weird, um, we're kind of in this weird moment right now in this industry where um, we're trying to say, like, which way to go, you know? I mean, there are, like, some promising... Um, signs of life in this industry like when i you know talking about india they sold 21 million in units in 2019 but uh last year they sold over 600,000 electric motorcycles in india 600,000 and if you remember back to what i was saying about the u.s market last year they sold 550,000 
like of all units, right, in the United States. So that means that in India, they sold more electric motorcycles than we sold of all bikes in the United States, right? So there's definitely like some signs of um, some life in that industry, but it's um, it's an exciting time because we're we're seeing it happen before our eyes, but it's also kind of a scary one because like I think there's going to be a lot of fallout, right? There's going to be a lot of companies that like rise and fall. There can be like companies that maybe like don't make it. You know, I think you're going to start seeing like a lot of, a lot of things happening and stuff, you know, but I mean, I think it's actually kind of exciting, you know, like I think, um, that's what the motorcycle industry needs is like some new blood and stuff. So it's, it's actually pretty interesting to watch. I don't know if you can answer this question, but is Piaggio doing stuff with EVs that we haven't seen yet? Is there stuff on the horizon or can you not say? I can't say anything specific, but I will say this, like. If there's a major OEM out there that isn't doing it, I think they're foolish. And <laughs> like, I think just because like, you know, I, I think, I think there are a lot of people who don't love the idea of electric motorcycles, but when we look at the regulations that are coming down from, you know, like I was saying before, it's a global market. So a lot of times we have to build, you know, we, we usually don't buy, you know, we usually don't build too many bikes for a single market right? It's like, we usually have to share it across several markets. And when you look at all the different regulations that are coming through in Europe and in, you know, Asia, um, it's coming, you know? And it's like, I think that, I, I think it's just something that people are going to have to sort of come to terms to because like it's, it is coming, you know? And there might be like some boutique, you know, companies that maybe say, nah, we're not going to, you know, jump on that. But I would say all the ma like major manufacturers, they have to have something like cooking. They have to. The funny thing is, to, the the number one issue I hear from people about why they hate EVs is the sound. They don't want to lose the sound of the exhaust. And and I gotta say, I love a quiet motorcycle. Like I love the silence when you just hear the whir, and it just kind of like you're just like going fast without that auditory. I think it's kind of neat. I think we might be missing the boat on trying to like claim this noise. And especially if you look at the non-motorcyclist, you know, like their biggest complaint about motorcycles is the noise, right? Like yeah. my wife and I were having breakfast on the coast and, you know, we pulled up in our, she was on a Superhawk, the BTR 1000. Nice. I was on a TL 1000 and we we're sitting there having breakfast with our helmets on the, on the bench. And then a bunch of Harleys come by and they're revving the engine at the stoplight and the baby starts crying and everybody looks at us and gives us a dirty look. And I was like, you know, I'm kind of okay with a quiet motorcycle. I'm, I'm kind of good with it, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I feel like one thing that always makes me say is like, I love track days, right? And um, when I when I think about a lot of these tracks, a lot of them are being pushed, you know, farther and farther away from these city centers and stuff, right? And one of the big things, like, you know, if you look at Laguna Seca, for example, you know, the, the residents there, they always complain about the noise. Like, if you want to do a track day there, you actually have to have a stock exhaust, I think. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, I think if, he, if they, they, they might actually mic you up and, like, check you and if if you're, I think they do. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a microphone on one of the straightaways. And when you go by, yeah. if it's over a certain sound yeah, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll meet Balia or something, you know, and be like, get out of here. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, if we can actually make like high performance bikes that are relatively quiet, I mean, I get it because I love the sound of a V4. I absolutely love it. But I'm trying to think of like, you know, the flip side, like what can it actually, like, what can we actually gain from it? 
if it actually means that we can start bringing in like recreational like writing like closer to the city centers and stuff i'm all for it right so if you have you know electric dirt bikes and maybe we can actually ride on trails that are you know closer so we don't have to drive two hours you know out of the city or if we can actually you know take our bikes and race them like you know uh you know half an hour away from your house or something i mean i would be all over that you know i think that would be so amazing because i think that's the other thing is that like if you really want to go out and have like that great riding experience, like on these great trails or like at these great tracks, they're all far away, you know, and you have to trailer there, you know, I mean, maybe you can Ironman it, but I don't, I don't know. I tried that once and I didn't like, I, it almost killed me, you know, right. I don't well, like on the track day. You're running the super sticky tires, right? You're going to destroy yeah. the tire before you even get there. Like if you're going to see so a trailer, right? Yeah. You know, so I just kind of wonder if there's a, like, you know, I think people are just sort of missing out on some of these opportunities that they may have, like the sport's going to change, right? And this is the thing, everything changes, right? And, and, and nothing's going to stay the same, like forever, but like, I'm, for me personally, I'm, I'm there for the ride, you know, I'm actually really excited to see like where it goes because yeah, we might lose some things, but like, I think we can gain a lot of things as well. And it's like, uh, if anything, like, I think a lot of people nowadays time is like their their greatest enemy so it's like you know if i want to go to track dance stuff like that like just you know it's like two hour drive you know each way you know and like you want to get there like when the gates open and stuff so you're waking up early early you know right and like um if we can bring that stuff closer like i think it's actually going to be good to um it'll help us grow the sport you know so i think it's actually going to be a net positive i do i actually completely and totally agree with you i wish that we had like a skateboard like an EV skateboard platform for motorcycles because I just feel like um, we're just not experimenting enough with that package. I think there's a lot yeah, we can do. Yeah, think about that. Like you brought up like the Vincent Black Shadow <laughs> or like a Norton Featherbed or some of these yeah. old motorcycles. Like I restored an old Bonneville. It was hateful, right? It was terrible. Yeah. Because it leaks oil and it doesn't, the points, the points get wet. and But like if you could just like put something in there and kind of still get that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think... I think we're going to figure out that, um, like it's a tough nut to crack, but I think we'll get there with EV, you know, but it's like lately, I feel like it's, it's more of a matter of will and like, will will people actually put like money into it and stuff like that? Cause if they do, I'm, I'm confident that we can, we can crack that nut, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially with like the- kids who are, I think nowadays, like they're so used to iPhones that they just charge and they don't have to fix it or anything. It's, you know, and like they kind of want that same experience from a, a bike, to be honest. Like they're not sure. too interested in wrenching from what I've seen, you know? No. Well, and you're always leaving the house with a full tank of gas, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to like, oh, I got the gas. I got, you know, like, right? Yep. Yep. So my biggest concern with e- with any e-technology, and this is going to make me sound old, is I love manual transmissions. And so like the too. idea of like... <laughs> Can we still shift? I I still want to shift. (laughs) The other thing that I'm surprised hasn't really caught on is belt drive, right? Because like they're getting stronger, they're getting narrower, no maintenance, again, quiet. Yeah. Right? I think there's two hard things with a belt drive. Um, You need to have larger sprockets. So it's like the front and rear sprockets actually have to be fairly large. Oh, because it can't make the tight turn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The tight turn is what kills belts. Right. So the, the front the front sprocket has to be pretty large, which, you know, to keep the same gear ratio, that rear one has to be really big. 
So like when you look at zeros and stuff, they have these massive wagon wheels, you know, and, um, that's one thing. But the other thing is the tension that you need. So like, uh, the amount of tension that you have to have and like how tight it is, especially when you have like the, you know, the rear like axle adjuster and stuff. Sometimes it kind of pulls it like a little bit askew and stuff. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So it's like sometimes like the belt stuff can be a little bit problematic, but I agree. Like, I think it's, I think it's underrated because it's also quieter. Like it's, you don't get so much like that chain, like, you know, the noise of the chain, you know, that's the type well, of noise I don't like. And if the tension's like. a big deal, if you're dealing with the swing arm travel, the chen- the tension changes to travel. So if you're dealing with something that's already really tight, yeah, does that it's going to limit travel in some situations. You'd have to engineer yeah. the swing arm movement to accommodate that. So I think most huh. of them have like some sort of like a little roller that maintains the tension so that like, you know, since the the motor, the motor output shaft and then your swing arm pivot are not concentric, right? So like if it's moving, it's going to get longer at the middle of it and stuff, right? In the middle of the, the suspension uh, swing. So it's like... Um, that that's going to be your your point of most tension and then it's going to be a little bit slack at the other points so it's like i don't know it's it's hard and i think the other thing is that you know even though they're really bulletproof and stuff chains last so long nowadays and like even when people don't like clean <laughs> their chains like they should <laughs> yeah they'll still get 15,000 miles yeah. out of a chain that's never touched you know yeah yeah so it's it's a tough one and stuff you know but i mean when we're talking about electric stuff and like making assumptions, like, you know, this is better than that and stuff like that. I agree with the the thinking. It's like, why is it belt more, you know, popular or like, um, like between you and me, like I'm, I don't know if I told you, but I took it, I, I'm taking an old GTS 1000, took the motor out and I'm making really? a, yeah, I'm making an electric GTS and like, Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm going to swap out the rear swing arm for a single-sided swing arm because what I want is like from the right side, all you see is wheel. You don't see like yeah, a it. fork or a swing arm in front of it. Um, so I'm building that right now, but I've been working on it for a long time. It's just a, a matter that's of a like money. That's a big bike. That is a big, heavy bike. So that's the problem is that like I, it's a long bike. The, that, the, the, um, the wheelbase is like, dude, it's so much longer than an R6. Like, cause I have, <laughs> for sure longer than an R6. I like I had like a 3D model of like of the GTS and then I had a 3D model of like the R6 like side by side. It's like half a wheel. Like it's so oh much longer. <laughs> and like um but I just I want to with this custom bike that I'm doing like I'm I'm going to make it like this sort of like naked street fighter type of bike. Um but I just want to question it's like what are we doing with electric bikes because forks became dominant because they were cheap to make and they were like the best for that solution you know but like if we have a different package overall is that always the case and it might still be but i feel like like people just assume it you know and it's just it's one of those things like you know if we want to do like recumbent motorcycles too like um like akira yeah you know is like is that something that you know people want i don't know like it's we just have like a lot of assumptions that I think we should actually revisit. And I'm hoping that we can start making some things that are really iconoclastic, right? Like we're taking these things that some people hold as holy and we just blast it away. And we say, no, because this is actually a better way. You know, you just couldn't see it. Do you remember Honda came out with like, it was like a prototype design experience. It, it was kind of like a VTR 1000. 
but it didn't have traditional forks. It had kind of like the, it almost looked like, do you know what I'm talking about? I can't remember what it was called. NES bike. It was, it was gorgeous. Look. It was stunning looking, but like to not have the traditional fork. Yep. Right? Like, so, you know, I'm like the trail braking guy. Did trail braking evolve because that's what the forks do? Is that where, how yeah, we ride a motorcycle? Totally. Did it come from that? Yeah. Or if, if telelever would have been designed a little bit differently, would that have been, because I think telelever got it backwards, right? The the trail gets longer as it compresses. But then the dude that, Hasek, the guy that they stole telelever from, right? Like some of his designs were really forward thinking, you know, like the whole industry could potentially look different. Yeah. If we would have followed a different path and would it be better? Would like the whole way we ride be different? You know, I, I think it would be, you know, and it's, I, I geek out about all of that stuff. Cause it's just like, um, yeah, I just think that we have so many assumptions that we made that like, we, we should revisit because when I look at other industries, you know, it's like they have a disruptor like fairly often. Right. But like, I feel like in motorcycles, like disruptors are sort of like shoot away, you know? Yeah. And, um, I think, and I understand why, because, you know, these are dangerous vehicles, like, I think people want to minimize risk, right? So I, I totally understand it. But sometimes I feel like we're pinning ourselves into a corner. And it's just that, like, if we want a healthy, burgeoning market, we need stuff for everybody else. We need more female writers. We need more young writers. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Absolutely. So what have been, what do you, name me some of the, what you see as the best designed, the prettiest motorcycles ever, like your favorite pretty motorcycles. Okay, so mine are going to be very, very different, I think, for most people. But, I, you know, the first one up there, like, I think I like quirky, right? I like kind of quirky bikes, so I'll, I'll just throw that out there. But, like, um, you know, NR750 is, like, it will always be, in my heart, like, one of the greatest bikes, right? Like, it was a huge inspiration for the 916, the Ducati 916. I don't, I think a lot of people don't know that. But I mean, it was a, a big influence there. But like, you know, I always loved that bike. Um, you know, to be honest, I always loved like the old, like late 80s, early 90s, like uh, like an 88 GSX-R750 slingshot. Like, I love that bike. I love that bike. Or like the old uh, uh, ZX-7Rs and the double Rs. Um, you know, that was really when I was getting into like, like when I was in middle school, when I was in junior high, right? Olympus, Olympus Junior High. I there used to be this dealership down at Highland Drive, uh, Perry Brothers. Like yeah, Perry, Perry Brothers is now way down on I fifteen. Yeah, they, they're now Honda World. But yeah, I know Perry Brothers. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I, I used to like you know before I got my driver's license, I used to go down there and just hang out. And like the the salespeople probably were like, who the hell is like this nerdy Asian kid that's just always like he he's not gonna buy. Like why doesn't he get out of here? But they were actually pretty cool about it. They just let me, like, you know, I go around and, like, sit on the bikes and stuff like that. But, you know, it's like I would see, like, all these bikes, like, you know, um, all these, like, uh, old ninjas and, like, these uh, GSXRs and stuff and the old CBRs, you know. Um, I really like the old 400s. Like you were saying, the VFR 400s, like, from Japan because, you know, my, my parents used to get these magazines from Japan and they'd always say, Greg, what do you want? And I'd always say, like, you know, get me some motorcycle magazines. And I would just, I think the 400s like cooler than the 600s or even the thousands, you know, back then and stuff. Cause they looked really, really like race ready. Um, so I always loved those bikes. Um, but I will say like, I, I also, you know, it's like, 
916, like, I, I almost feel like that's such a cop-out answer, but I always thought that was such a beautiful bike, you know? And then, um, like, uh, the first time that I saw, like, the, the first R1, you know, it's like, I felt like that really, really sort of did something, like, you know, to my heart. But also, like, um, like uh, I uh, I always like things like the, um, when I was older, I found out about, like, you know, some of the Vincent bikes, you know, Black Shadow and stuff. And I, I found out about, like, how the frames worked. I was obsessed with that for a long time. But also, like, the Elf, those Elf recent bikes, they were so quirky, right? They had, like, these... With the square, the X wheels, yeah. the wheels that were the X, yeah. And, like, single-sided swing arms, like, and, like, I just thought they were so cool, you know? So it's, like, I don't know if I'd call them, like, the most beautiful bikes, but those are definitely the ones that really, like, hung with me, um, like, growing up and stuff. And then, uh, uh, I won't lie, like, I'm not just trying to... I'm not just trying to please, like, Aprilia or anything, but when the RSV fork first hit and it had that super minimal tail... And it oh, had the, with the wings, yeah, and the point, uh, with the, and it had the V four and stuff, and I'm just like, yo, that thing is so crazy. Like I was at Suzuki at the time, and I was like, turning here, I'm like, why can't we make this? Why can't we do oh, this? Yeah. Well, yeah. in the the Max Biaggi Sepang paint scheme, yeah. especially, it was like the orange with the big white on the side, and the and the oh man, that bike just like it, yeah, kind of like moves you. You're like, and then to hear that V four and the crackle when you shift, yeah, and, man, it just. I don't know. It's like, so it, I don't know if that answers your question or not. You know, I think maybe my taste is a little bit different than most people, but like, you know, clearly sport bike oriented, but like that eighties, nineties, like time was so golden, you know, to me. And it's like, I'll, I'll just always love those bikes. Always. Dude, it's hilarious. Cause every bike you mentioned, I was like, yeah, yeah. And that one, and that one, like the, like some of these obscure, the 400s, like the bike I bought from Bjorn was a CB1 400F. Oh, I love right? those. Yeah, like, those are fantastic yeah, the bikes. the blue with the metal plates and the, you know, I had a Hawk GT that I just adored with the big aluminum frame and the- Single-sided yeah, swing arm like, and all that, yeah. Yep, single-sided swing arm, very, very special. The ZX-7 with the, the, the big black snorkel tubes yeah. that came out of the tank and into the, oh man, I loved those bikes. Absolutely adored them. Actually, yeah. like those bikes that have like the, you know, the vacuum cleaner like hoses. I want one for like my stable. Like I, yeah, there was just something about having that like right there by your face. And you're just like, yeah, this thing is like so trick. You know, I love that. I love that stuff. Like even like an FZR, like I remember those old ones and stuff. Like uh, they're bubbly and stuff, but I like them. I still like all those bikes. Yeah, I had an FZR 600 was my first proper sport bike. Yeah, with the, and you got to like the colors of the 80s too, like all the pinks and the blues and the wiggly lines. <laughs> bring it back, man. Like bring it back. I always thought that stuff was so cool. Yeah. Did you see someone's doing a retro, they did a retro race something and it looks like a 1989 Jixxer with the pink and blue squiggle up the side of it on yeah. a modern motorcycle and it looks yeah. really good. It looks really good. Yeah, I'm trying to remember like a, I'm trying to remember the name of the outfit, but yeah, I was looking at that just the other day. It looks fantastic. Yep, yep. I saw like someone took an SV like and put like an old GSXR like front like front fairing on it and stuff, and like that looks super cool too. And I I just I feel bad like I would I would mention the name, but I just don't know like who it was that did it. But yeah, that like there's just you know the love for that style of bike I think is still there, and um, you know I'm I'm. I'm friends with the Avi over at uh, Iconic and like, you know, every once in a while he'll let me just sort of like peek in there and like, they'll have rows of like 
RC30s, RC45s, and like, you know, like these old like G6Rs and ZX7s and stuff. I'm like, thanks, brother. Like, I just, I needed that. I needed that, you know? So, yeah, yeah. those bikes are so great. Yeah. Which that, that brings up a question. When you design a bike, are you thinking of the longevity of the design? Like, you know, are you thinking, will this go out of style or do I want to make something that's going to have more longevity and, and be cool forever? It depends on the brand. I, I think it depends on the brand. So it's like, um, you know, it's like, I, I feel like there are certain types that like it, they benefit from, from staying on the market longer. So like when I was working on, um, Challenger, that was something where it's like, I knew that that one was going to have like a longer shelf life, you know? So for that one, I, I kind of, the inspiration for that was a lot more classical and that, you know, I'm using stuff that I know that market likes, like the muscle cars, um, you know, with Kawasaki, those guys do turn over their, their vehicles like pretty often compared to the other, uh, manufacturers. So for them, like, I was just thinking like, you know, what is sort of hot at the moment, you know, like, um, one thing is that like on the, that 650, like it has a interesting, like windscreen, the windscreen goes all the way down to the headlights. And like, what I always thought is that like people would do something with that black surface underneath, like paint it or do like little, you know, do some sort of graphics or something underneath it to, you know what I mean? Like, I thought that would actually be sort of like a window for people to, to do something, you know, cool with it and stuff. Haven't seen it yet, but, uh, nobody's done it. Well, maybe they will now. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's, this is like, going to. That's a great idea. Push them, right? You know, you also worked on the Versus, which, again, I think that is a, a fantastic motorcycle, but also kind of a, a little bit of a polarizing design. A lot of people don't like it. I personally do. Mm-hmm. Um, I just did, like, a little bit on the Versus. Like, the Versus, when I first got to Kawasaki, that bike was already, like, pretty far along. But then, um, you know, they're making, like, their last push and stuff, and they needed help. Like, I think I helped, like design like the muffler like tip of it and stuff and like oh yeah it's <laughs> something like, pretty small yeah it's like you know they're like a lot of that's that's another thing is like you know some companies like the bikes are designed by like mostly one guy and then other other places like it might be more of a team and in kawasaki like you know it's like if we all helped each other you know so if if uh you know some projects were were you know there's just more stuff to design like um i'll give you an example like um because I had like a background as a as an automotive like cab modeler, uh, I was helping on the the Kawasaki uh, H2SX, right? Where they just um, the H2SX was interesting because what they did is that they would, uh, you know, one thing that people uh, that I'd love people to understand is that like with the the new instrumentation, you know, they're using like these, um, you know, these bright TFT you know screens now, but a thing that wasn't a consideration in the past is how much it reflects off your windscreen, right? So that was something that they had to, like, we had to do a ton of testing to make sure that you were blinded at night if you're in a full tuck, right? Because the early iterations of that windscreen, like when you're in a full tuck, you can't, you could not see anything out of that thing. <laughs> just it was just, backward. all you saw was just the screen reflected in the, the windscreen and stuff. And uh, it was terrible. So. Um, you know, I had to use like uh, software to sort of test a bunch of different like positions of a helmet and stuff. And we had to sort of like test it and make sure that these shapes wouldn't actually like reflect back to the user and stuff. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. So there was, you know, the main designer on that, um, you know, he was off doing like the fairings and stuff, but I was helping him with like some of the smaller bits, like the, the, um, the controls. Yes. I was designing the controls, but then also the, 
the windscreen of it, making sure that it doesn't reflect back. And then like, you know, even things like the fork caps, you know, it's like, we're just designing like, even like little parts like that. So, um, you know, some bike companies, they'll not bother with things like the fork caps, but like Kawasaki does, you know, so that's another difference between the different studios and stuff. But I mean, there's, you know, it just kind of gives you an idea of like how much work goes into each one of these bikes. You know, and I don't think I ever would have thought the fork cap was designed. I always saw that as a mechanical piece. Yeah. You know, like here's the nut to take it off or, you know, the, the new, the big piston forks with the, they, I thought they were just function before form. I never would have imagined yeah. that they were, there was an aesthetic component built into those. Yeah. Yeah. So not every studio, but like the Kawasaki guys, they, they, you know, every opportunity that they had to, to put their touch on something, they would try, you know, so, um, the other companies, maybe not, so, like, maybe they wouldn't get to that level of detail. The Cali guys really, they really like to sort of look at that. Yeah. What's one thing that you wish more people understood about the challenges you face or what it takes to design a motorcycle? I think the hardest thing for most people outside of the industry to understand is, it, it's something that I mentioned before, but, like, just how global the market is now. You know, like, um, I think in the early aughts, the U.S. really drove a lot of the decision-making at these motorcycle companies because uh, they might not have sold as many units, but the total amount of profit was so high. But then as soon as they hit the global recession, um, you know, it's like, honestly, like this market never really fully recovered to the point that it was like in 2005, 2006. And so, you know, we look a lot at these other markets and stuff, you know, sometimes we have bikes that are really, you know, honestly designed for other markets that we sell here, you know? And, um, I'll give me an example. Like, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of dealerships, you know, sometimes it's on business trips or, or sometimes like even when I'm on vacation, like my wife hates it, but like, I'll go visit a dealer and just kind of shoot the breeze with those guys. But I just kind of want to know, like, you know, those guys are the front line, right? It's like, they're the ones that really talk to the customers and they're the ones that you can really tell me, what are the things that are really popular, like in this area? But on the, you know, conversely, like the only thing is that their, their view on the market is hyper local, you know? So, um, you know, for like the New York guys will always tell me, it's like, you know what you guys need to do is polish these frames like that. I feel like has oh. never gone out of style <laughs> in New York. And, uh, like, do you know what I mean? Like these things that are like very local to these, these, um, neighborhoods and, you know, even in the United States, the difference between like the the northeast and say california is huge or like even like between new york and dc those two markets have very different tastes it's it's wild because they're so close to each other but like especially color and graphics you know it's like what those guys prefer is very very different or like you go down to florida like miami you know it's like um i mean to be honest the way that they ride is different their seasons are different you know, so of course what they want is different, right? Like, uh, you know, extended swing arms will probably never go away over there because they have such long straight roads where they're just cruising out there and they can ride, you know, more months out of the year than the guys up in New York, right? And maybe the guys up in New York, like, you know, they're they're trying to turn and make U-turns in like a tight urban area. So they want oh, a right. shorter, yeah. you know what I mean? So I, I think they just have to understand that like all these bikes that we make, we don't, want to make any kind of compromises but because we're selling to so many different markets you know it's like we need to make something that is um desirable and livable for all of those different markets you know and it's like 
there isn't like one single thing that we can do that's going to just like make the bike better for every single market. Like that's rarely the case. But um, I think that's kind of like what I, that I just want to, you know, send that out there that, you know, we're, we're designing for so many different customers, you know, and it, it can be, it's a fun challenge, but it is a challenge. It's a really, really difficult challenge. And um, uh, I, I think the other, you know what, I'll have one more thing. I think the other thing that I would love to throw out there is that, you know, these studios nowadays, like they tend to be very uh, international. So it's like, if you go to Japanese studio, like it's not just Japanese guys there, right? And it's like, you're going to have people from other markets in there as well. If you go to like Ducati, like, you know, I think they've got like Indian, French, Italian, like, you know, they've got, you know, designers from like all over the place, right? So like this idea that like, you know, just because the country of origin, uh, you know, it's not like you can't say like, um, you know, they designed this way or, you know, these guys designed that way. You know, they've got Italian designers at the Japanese studios. You know, they've got Japanese designers at the, you know, European studios. It's just, it's really actually quite, um, it, you know, it's, it's the, the studios themselves are actually quite international nowadays. Well, and I'm going to guess that we're going to see more Indian influence, right? If that market is that big. Yep. Right. Like we're yep. it, it, Indian designers and Indian influence and I'm right. I'm, I'm sure that... super glad to hear you say that because like, yeah, it's like, that's like, you know, kind of taking that information and forecasting, you know, like you think like a designer, Dave, like, I hope you know that. Right. Cause <laughs> it's, uh, you know, like I think those are things you have to look at the data and just think like, where is it going to go? You know, like if you're really interested in that stuff, like if there are any, if any of the listeners are interested in getting to motorcycle design, like I would just really recommend like looking at these different markets, right? Like what are they doing? Like, what are they interested in? You know, like if you're really interested in that stuff, like, like take it and then, um, you know, start thinking for yourself, like forecast, right? Like what's going to happen? Like, is India going to have like a bigger say in our, in our motorcycle market? Absolutely. They are right. Because it's not just the, the number of bikes that they sell, but also the passion that they have. Like, if you talk to anyone from India that's into bikes and you just, you know, it's like, hey, tell me about Royal Enfield. Like, grab a beer, kick back, because you're in for a long conversation about, like, you know, the grandpa had a, you know, uh, a Royal Enfield bullet or something. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, that love runs really, really deep, and they're really passionate about it. So I think, you know, it's like our our industry is changing, but, I mean, if they're interested in it, definitely look past your local dealership definitely look past your the city and the seat that you live in like look at these other markets even in the country that you live in like you know because it's it really is um it's really vast and there are a lot of different markets that you could really geek out on you know so i would just say like if you're curious about it like stay hungry and look at all the markets that you can just try to you know take in as much as you can because there's so much out there to see and learn and it's so like it's all fascinating I love it all. Well, and the interesting thing too about India, there's some really dynamite YouTube channels out of India, yeah. and it's pretty accessible for us because it's it's English. Mm -hmm. And there, like you were saying, like the, the passion, some of these riders, like the the KTM 390. There's a whole Instagram, most of the Instagram KTM 390 because they're made in India. Yeah, these kids are so passionate about these little 390s over there and what they're doing with them. And you know, I look at them from a safety guy, and I'm cringing most of the time, right? Like. 
like no gear stoppies and like Shit. all sorts of crazy <laughs> stuff they do. But they freaking they love it. They really, you know, yeah. It's it is interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like I mean, I think you're looking at that right stuff where it's just you know, seeing like what those guys are into, and then just think about like you know, ten years from now, what are they going to be into? You know, and you start building like this customer profile. You know, and it's just once you start like instead of just um you know, it's like I, I hope people can look at like some of this content and like instead of just passively taking it in, actively thinking about like what does that lead to? You know, because that's what's really important with this market is like we want not just people who can sketch well, not just people who have new ideas, but also people who can kind of start looking into the future and start forecasting. You know, that's what's really, really important in our, in any kind of like design, you know, uh, um, occupation, I think is being able to like, you know, think about it and, and project into the future. Like, what is it that, you know, this market is going to need 10 years from now? That's, that's key. Well, and I love how you draw inspiration from the demographic that you're building for. I think that's really, it's, it's, it's kind of like a, a very positive sensitivity, right? Like this is the person who's going to buy this bike. I want to incorporate things that are important to that demographic. I think that's really cool. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, like I, I think, you know, I, I think that's the thing is that like, um, even if you're not into a certain market, like honor that market. You know, I think that's actually super important because like, um, I'll just be honest, man. It's like I'm not a cruiser guy. You know, it's like I respect it. You know, it's like people are into it. Cool. You know what I mean? Like I probably will buy one, you know, but I can appreciate that market. And um, when I was working on those projects, I really tried to take into account, like, um, you know, you need to use empathy and you have to sort of think about like, what is it that those guys are like, what is it that those guys care about? You know, I'm not trying to design it for me. I'm trying to design it for them. You know, I think that's the other thing is like to be a successful designer, you need to have a really strong sense of empathy where you can look at these markets and sort of like tr you're trying to understand like what it is that makes them tick you know and i'm i'm honestly not you know my my goal is to always try to design for that market and if i ever feel like i'm designing for myself i need to start stepping back and like reevaluating you know it's like the i don't design. know based on your taste i want to see some more like a pure greg design in a motorcycle because it sounds like i'd probably buy it <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, yeah man it's like you know i'm working on like some like just personal projects and stuff so hopefully like i'll just start posting that stuff soon you know but yeah it's like it's it is important to have that self-expression too but yeah it's like i think that's the thing it's like the the i, would, I don't want to say the burden of a designer but like you know just i think the main goal of a designer should always be like to design for your for your customers um, another question I forgot to ask. This one's from May since she has that um, that yellow Aprilia, the uh, the yellow RS. How are colors decided? You know, I, you know, like I'm a little tired of black. I'm not gonna lie, right? Like, but like how like I kind of like a, a colorful motorcycle, but I'm sure like there's a whole decision process you got to navigate to determine what color it's gonna be. Yeah, yeah. So most companies have a team that do the color and graphics. And, uh, you know, they'll hire like these, you know, really talented graphic designers that'll go in there and they'll even like formulate their own paint colors and such. And um, some of it, it depends like, you know, the Suzuki guys, like they'll actually, they'll do like a bunch of different schemes that they'll actually go in like focus group 
and just kind of see like, you know, they'll go to like different parts of the country and just say, Hey, what's, you know, what kind of, what kind of like, um, makes your heart sing, you know? And, uh, it just sort of depends. Like it just, and then other companies, like they'll just say, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, they don't check, you know? So Kawasaki's going to be green, right? Like- yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, I mean, the, I think the Japanese guys, they usually focus group a lot and stuff, but then the other ones, they kind of do it a little bit more from the heart or from the gut. You know, so so I'm pre- surprised that you don't have as much to do with the color as I would have thought. That you're really look. That's not a big part of what you do. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, like, huh? I don't know. Like, I um, I think it's uh, you know, I'm not colorblind or anything, but it's like when I look at these bikes and stuff, I I just look at the form. You know, I look at that surface. You know, I look at the volume and the silhouette. You know, so that's like I'm really focused on that. And um, I don't know. I'm I'm terrible at color and graphics. There are a lot of designers who can do both, like, equally well. Um, I am not blessed to be one of them, you know, so I'm glad that they don't ask me to do coloring graphics. But, um, yeah, they usually have, like, a separate team, but they're usually, like, you know, they'll they'll pull people from, like, the fashion industry. They'll pull, you know, people from graphic design and this, these different disciplines and stuff to, to sort of, like, you know, really try to nail it and stuff. Um, but, yeah, black was... <laughs> that was, like, the default color forever. I agree with you. It's like, we need to do something a little more. Yeah. So I do have, since I'm talking to Aprilia, I have two requests of Aprilia. All right. Go ahead. Um, I would love the TFT dashes to have a dark mode that I could just leave it in. I really, I don't like the all white all the time, uh-huh. especially when you're on the track. You're like coming across the, the gauge and you get this big white flash in your eyes as you go by. I'd love a pure dark mode. Interesting. Yeah. The other thing, this is a little harder. Um, I would love an RSV4 Multistrada with 17-inch front wheels and long travel suspension and Ooh. a center stand. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a Touareg with a, with a V4 motor and a 17-inch front wheel. So just throwing that out there. All right. <laughs> we'll throw it out there. And like, I, I wish that was more on the product planning side because I think those guys always have such a fun time like coming up with like, you know, new new products and like where to take it and stuff like that. But you know what? Like, let's put it out there in the ether and see what happens. You never know. Yeah, I would love it because I think... Like the current Multistrada, you know, they're going to 19-inch front wheels, which is fine. Like they're chasing the, the BMW GS market. Yeah. But it's leaving a big gap in that kind of hyper motard, super motard mm. travel bike, which I think, and that V4 motor is such a joy. <laughs> yeah, like it's the V4 motor is like catch up to me where you could put it on anything and it's delicious. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Matt. It's like, Ketchup is not really the, the condiment I would have gone yeah, for, but like, okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's the one that popped in my head, but you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's just, you know, you could sprinkle that on anything. You're just like, oh, that made it better. It's like V4 dirt bike. Sweet. Let's make it. <laughs> let's make a V4 dirt bike. Yeah. <laughs> well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Um, be sure to let me know next time you're in Salt Lake, man. I'm going to buy you a coffee. We're going to sit down and we're just going to talk motorcycles some more. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on uh, Ken Chaser's podcast, The Breaking Zone. Uh, don't forget about uh, Apex Track Days. Come ride with me. Come do a track day or Utah Sport Bike Association slash schools. Um, I remember June 4th and August 5th, we have two great schools. Alex and I are going to be teaching. It's going to be super awesome. Um, and don't forget about our Discord server. Uh, and click like and subscribe. You know, on all these all these platforms, that's called an engagement score. and or Yeah, it's a satisfaction score. It ranks your engagement. And it tells the platform that you like the content or you didn't. And it helps shepherd the content uh, more to your liking. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. Guys, ride on and ride well.